Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. He is risen. I love to hear that. There's a little joke, a little kind of fun thing at the Road Ever home around that very expression. Uh, many of you know I didn't grow up in a Christian household. I didn't grow up hearing the gospel, came to Christ a little bit later in life. And even then, it was in a situation where uh, it was out in the islands of Hawaii. So, uh, you know, it was just a very, well, I call them cafeteria churches. We met in public school cafeterias. We went to the beach in the early morning, came to service. So very non-traditional. Years later, when I moved to the States and became part of a, I think it was actually it was an evangelical free church like this, walking into the church, an older saint on Easter Sunday morning came up to me and said, he is risen, having no idea the tradition. I said, awesome. No, you weren't looking for a high five there. That's not how that goes. So in the Rodiver household, when we say he is risen, you have two responses. Either he's risen indeed, or my kid's favorite is awesome with a high five. So I don't know if that'll be a tradition here, but that's just where I come from. Uh, there's a particular uh, phrase in our passage this morning that I want to draw your attention to. It's where uh, Peter writes, and he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Right there. I, I love that line because it's everything about what Easter is about. What is Easter if it is not about hope? And, and by hope, Peter doesn't mean a kind of vague, spiritually ambiguous hope that's more close along the lines of a, a wishful thinking, Peter's talking about a real hope that has substance to it, a hope that you can grab and wrestle down, more importantly, a hope that you can build your life upon. That kind of hope is in great demand in the world we live, but is in very short supply, isn't it? That's the kind of hope that Peter is writing about to these early Christians. Peter's writing to early Christians who are losing their hope because they are living in a world that's growing more and more hostile to the gospel of Christ. They are growing more and more hostile to the message of salvation through Christ. It is a world that's more pluralistic than monotheistic. It is a world that is shaped more by power and corruption than justice and virtue. It is a world that seems much more concrete and real than the faith that they had embraced that changed their lives. Now, Peter at this time, he's, as, as he's writing to these people in his epistle, he's no longer the, the young, ready, fire, aim disciple of the gospel accounts. Decades and decades and decades have passed. As Peter's writing now, he is a wizened sage. He, he is an elder of elders. He is a father to the churches, and he's also a target of the powers of Rome as he is looking as well to his soon-coming execution as Christ had prophesied to him in John chapter 21. So when Peter writes about a living hope, Peter was writing about a reality that he knows very much about. As he is seeing the rise of persecution and the suffering of the early church and looking to his own death, yet he can do so with abiding hope. So we want to listen and learn from a man who knows what hope is about because we live in a world like theirs that needs lots of hope. So we're going to ask Peter three questions about hope this morning. Why do we need a living hope and what is it? Why do we have this living hope and how is it possible? And finally, what are the results of having this living hope? Why do we need this living hope? What is it? Why do we have this living hope? How is it possible? And what are the results of having this living hope? 
That's how we're going to look at our passage this morning. Let me pray and ask God to bless the teaching of His Word, and we're going to jump right in. Father, we are gathered this morning eager to know what Easter is about, eager to celebrate what Easter is about. Father, eager to worship You. Really, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Friday is Good Friday. We continually live in the tension of needing a Savior, having one, and celebrating the work. And Lord, we gather today to, to hear what Your Spirit would have to say as to the teaching of Your Word. So would You give us, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says and eyes to see the riches that are in Your Word. And we'll thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. So why do we need a living hope, and what is it? If you look just one verse below the text we're looking at this morning, you'll see why these early Christians needed this living hope, and it's the same reason we need it today. Verse 6 says this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. These trials that these early Christians experienced were the loss of their property and livelihood the heat of persecution, the uncertainty of being displaced from their homes and lands. They need a living hope for the same reason that you and I need a living hope, is because we all live in a world of suffering. We all live in a world full of suffering, and there's no way to get through life unless you know how to get through suffering. And there's no way to get through suffering unless you have a living hope. In my, um, in my doctorate, doctoral studies, I've done a lot of reading in existential literature, and one of my favorites has been a man named Viktor Frankl. Now, Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychologist, and he was in prison for three years in Auschwitz, one of the, the most well-known Nazi concentration camps where they exterminated millions of Jews. Years after being released from Auschwitz, Frankl wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and, and in this book, he records his observations, ever the researcher, even as he stayed for three years in some of the most inhumane, cruelest, and deplorable conditions known to man, he kept making observations of, of how people endured what they did. And Frankl writes in Man's Search for Meaning that as he watched thousands of people in those concentration camps die, he said he, he recognized there were four different patterns to how people responded to having all meaning and hope taken from them. He said one group of people, they became very brutal. He writes that they became almost animalistic, and even though in life and in the lives outside, they were very well-mannered, good-hearted people, when in the concentration camps, when life was so precarious and there was cruelty everywhere, the only way these people seemed to survive was themselves become very brutal and animalistic towards one another. As all hope left them, they were kind of regressed into becoming animals. A second group of people that Frankel records just gave up and died. And he said that he and, and his, uh, his friends in the concentration camps dreaded the moment because they could always spot it in an individual when finally they had been overcome with the reality that there was no hope for them. So they dreaded it. They could see their friends just laying there. No amount of beating or, or kicking or, or insults would make them move. They would eventually just die because they had no hope. 
a third group that Frankel recognized. He says that their hope, they believed that while they were in the camps, they held on to the fact that somehow if they could survive and get back the things that gave their lives hope before they got into the camp, so their wealth, their status, their family, their, their possessions, those things, that, that they would be okay. And so their hope in the camp was the hope that they would survive and get back the things that once gave their lives hope. Well, as I said, this book was written years after Auschwitz, and what's interesting, Frankel noted that when those people did get back the things that gave their lives hope before, it wasn't enough to account for the kind of suffering and wicked depravity that they'd experienced. And they realized that it wasn't enough, and many of them committed suicide even after being liberated from the concentration camps. Their hopes were not strong enough to answer the wickedness of the world. There's this much smaller group that Frankel records, this fourth group. He said, these people, they were able to keep their full inner liberty, he calls it, and maintained an outward strength. Frankel was astounded. He says, how did these people maintain this, this inner liberty, this outward strength? Why were they able to endure when others would simply give up and die? Others would commit suicide. Others would become animalistic. How did these maintain a beauty and dignity through the most depraved situations? Frankel writes this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Life in the concentration camps tears open the human soul and exposes his depths and his foundations. Frankel says, so what were those foundations? He writes this, life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and death cannot destroy. Let me read that again. It says, life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that neither suffering or death cannot destroy. Peter calls it a living hope as contrasted with a hope that is dead because one that is dead is based on futile things. The Christian's hope is an ever-living ground of hope because Christ Himself is ever-living. Think about that. Peter is saying that the present hope of Christians in the ground is grounded in a historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead and that their hope is guaranteed to the future because Christ is ever-living as well. So the present hope we have in Christ is grounded in a past reality and is guaranteed into the future because he rose from the grave. That is why Peter can use these amazing adjectives we find in verse 4. He's calling it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And to, to highlight the value of that, he calls it an inheritance. An inheritance, that's something that an individual receives at a certain point of time, and it's always something that you look forward to. But unlike earthly inheritances, this one was unfading, imperishable, and undefiled. You see, Easter removes the suffering of this world and replaces it with a valuable living hope that lasts for eternity. So, so why do we need this living hope? It's because we live in a world of suffering. You and I, we are so different in this room. If you just look across this room, there are so many of us that are so different. But one thing we all will share, we will all suffer. The reason we need a living hope is because we're all going to suffer in this life. And Easter provides the answer. Is that living hope is this gift of eternal life that Peter calls this inheritance. The next question we need to ask Peter then is, then, then why do we have this living hope and how is it possible? Why do we have this living hope? It's right there in the second part of verse 3. 
Because God is merciful. Notice it says, according to His great mercy. We have this living hope because God is merciful. Now, I know in our culture, it's probably more popular to say that maybe because there's something special about us, maybe God looked upon us and saw something of inherent value in each and one of us, or maybe that we worked hard enough and somehow we earn it or deserve it. But none of those things would be true. None of those things would be true. We have this living hope because three words, God is merciful to us. Let me put some scriptures on the screens behind me here. The first is Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, Paul writes, God saved us not because of works done by us in, uh, in righteousness. Now, let's just stop right there. Isn't that great to know that God saved us? God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. The trick with having to earn your salvation, and put it in the normal words, the trick with having to be good enough is you never know if you're good enough. And it's relative, isn't it? Who Good enough in comparison to who? Good enough in comparison to who? This morning during our elder prayer, one of our elders, Rick Martin, made this great point. The problem of our culture is we don't want to think about our own wickedness. We think of it in terms of I'm not as bad as so-and-so or, I used to, or I'm better than the so-and-so. It's all relative. And if we had to earn it, we would never know if we'd earned enough. And if we earned enough, maybe we did something bad and then tipped the scales again, and then we'd be worried again. And Paul says through Titus, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And Paul the Apostle would write to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 4, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. So we have this living hope because God is a merciful God, and God is a merciful God because of the great love by which He loved us. And we see that great love no more clearly displayed than in the sacrifice of His Son on our behalf, which gives us the answer to our second question. Well, then how is this living hope possible? The living hope is possible, as Peter says in the third part of verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His physical resurrection. Now, if you're um, visiting with us, if you're not a Christian, let me ask you, do you ever wonder why we make a big deal about the physical reality of Christ's resurrection? I mean, Easter is something that most people celebrate. You know, they, they, a lot of people, good people believe that yeah, Jesus was a good moral teacher, and I love the things he stood for, but probably the myth of his resurrection kind of res- came about because they wanted the ideas of Jesus to continue on. Aren't we just happy enough celebrating that? Can't Easter just be a celebration of, of new beginnings, of summer after winter, of, of hope uh, springs eternal? Why do you have to make a big deal about a physical resurrection? We make a big deal about the physicality of Jesus coming back from the grave for two important reasons. Two important reasons that we will go to the mat that Jesus came back from the grave because it teaches us two things about life after the grave. The first one is this. Because Jesus physically rose from the grave, it tells us that Jesus destroyed the bonds of death. Because Jesus physically conquered the grave and came back in a physical body, we know that the bounds of death have been destroyed. 
There's this uh, a Puritan uh, author and preacher by the name of John Owen wrote the best title of a book on this topic, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. I love that. I'm going to say it again. The death of death in the death of Christ. Jesus' physical resurrection proved that death is no longer the end of the road. Think about that. No other system on earth, be it political, philosophical, cultural, or religious, proclaims to have conquered the grave. Many would like to, but none of them have. And so as a result, what they need to do is is try to either ignore death or somehow minimize death or explain death away as if if life at all were some kind of illusion or as if death doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is the here and now. But Jesus was the only one who didn't ignore death. He didn't minimize it. He didn't try to explain it away. Jesus, in fact, was the only one that looked death right in the eye and did not blink. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul the Apostle was even arguing with one of the early church, making the case for the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20, Paul mentions this. Earlier on, he says, look, if Christ did not raise from the dead, we are of all men to be pitied. If Christ did not physically raise from the dead, this is a waste of time. But in verse 20, he says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, chances are nobody here is a farmer, so let me explain what a first fruit is. A first fruit is that that first early bud or that first harvest that comes in that guarantees that the rest of the harvest is going to happen. And Paul is saying Jesus' resurrection from the grave is like that first beautiful plum or peach that comes up and it says, guaranteed, the harvest is coming. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, he's referring to Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, including the power of Rome, these early Christians must have thought. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Here it is in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because Jesus physically came back from the grave, that is empirical proof to us that death, the bonds of death, have been broken. The second reason that we make such a big deal and so important the physicality of Jesus is because Jesus' physical resurrection tells us we have a whole new way to relate to this world around us. Because of Jesus' physical resurrection, we relate to this world entirely differently. In other words, heaven is physical. If you are a Christian, your eternal future is a physical future. You're not going to be floating around in some kind of disembodied state, wearing a toga, playing a harp, and with a halo over your head, or any of that kind of weird rubbish. We are looking forward to a physical future. 
in the gospel narratives. This is why they're always making a big deal of Jesus' body. Did you notice that? He said, touch me, touch my wounds, give me some fish, let me eat some fish. John the Apostle, John the Apostle said in his gospel, we have seen with our own eyes, we've heard with our own ears, we've handled with our own hands. I know you might think we're crazy, you might want to call us a liar, but what can we do? We saw him. We saw the man that we, we saw on the cross, and just a few days later, he was there. And we, we poked at it, and it was there. They make a big deal about the physicality of Jesus' resurrection because in the resurrection, we're going to have bodies. <laughs> we're going to hug. We're going to love. We're going to dance. We're going to play. We're going to have flavors. We're going to eat because I have a body in the physical resurrection in eternal life. It's not some disembodied state floating on a cloud. You know what this means? This means is you are not going to miss out on anything. You are not going to miss out on anything. What awaits those who place their faith in Christ is a real tactile world of senses, of smells, of flavors, of touch, of sight, of sound. What this means then is I can live my life here without any regrets. You know, I, I think as I'm relatively new to South Orange County, my family have been here for about a year, I see a lot of people in South Orange County living fr frantically trying to get everything out of this life, to squeeze in as much as they can of this life as they can, every fulfilling experience and opportunity and places to eat. They want the California promise that South County was promised to be, and they're going to do everything they can to get it. But the resurrection tells us we don't need to, to do that. The promise of a physical resurrection means that the best that this life has to offer will not compare, not even a little bit, to what awaits those who place their faith in Christ. So what that means is, if you're working hard to achieve all that success, you can relax. You don't need to put in 75, 80 hours a week to achieve that success. You can live sacrificially. You don't have to have that ideal family vacation that you want to cherish from. You don't have to have all those weekend getaways. That's okay. You don't have to buy premium. You can buy economic. You can do all those things. Give the rest away. You can live sacrificially. You can let people impose on you. You can let your neighbor's dog bark and still love them. They can park in front of your house and you won't get upset. You can let people impose on you. You can live sacrificially. You can live for the things that truly matter because now you understand what truly matters. And you're not going to miss out on anything in this life that the resurrection cannot give you. I want to read to you... Um, I was talking at our Good Friday service to uh, Chris and Wendy, I thought I saw him here, and, and I was talking about how I've been rediscovering the writings of C.S. Lewis. So I've been reading a little bit, dipping in and out of his book called The Weight of Glory, and I found this gem, and I thought, I have to share it with you all, so I'm going to have it on the screen behind me. Now, now, Lewis, keep in mind, he's a British medieval scholar from Oxford, so I'm going to read what he says, and it took me a while to figure it out myself, and I'm going to explain what he says, but some of you might just get it right out of the gate. Certainly the people in Dave Erickson's C.S. Lewis reading group probably know this. This is what Lewis writes. The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead 
that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating. Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. Okay, this is what Lewis is saying. He's saying, look, all these things in this life that we call physical pleasures, the food that we love, the intimacy that we share, the, 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 the recreation we enjoy, the feel of the sun, the, the ocean, the surfing, the snowboarding, all those things, those are just little faint froth flickers of the residual energy that God used to implant in the physical world. All that we're receiving now, and even now, even though they're filtered, it's just, it's just a faint flicker of what God intends eternity to be. He says, what would it be like to, to drink from that fountainhead without any filter? That, that right now, with all these filters, we're already intoxicated by them. One day, we're going to be at the fountainhead and get all that physical pleasure. That is the reason, one of the reasons, we fight for the physicality of Christ's resurrection. You see, if Easter is just spiritualized, if it's just that kind of sentimental, this is nice, new beginnings, uh, beauty after tragedy kind of thing, if, if Easter is just spiritualized, it's just about me and feeling good. But if Easter is real, then it's for everyone. It's, it's the news that warms my heart precisely because it's news not about what was just warming my heart. It is a real hope for humanity. Easter is the proof that God will not tolerate the decay and wickedness of this world. Right? You take away the, the physicality of Easter, and Karl Marx is right, that Christians don't care about the material problems of this world. You take away the physicality of Easter, and Freud is right, that, that Christianity is just wish fulfillment. You take away the physicality of Easter, and Nietzsche was right, that Christianity is just for wimps. But because Jesus physically rose from the dead, Easter tells us that this physical world matters, that people matter, that things matter, and now we can live for what really matters in our life. We can use our time, our influence, our money for more than getting all we can for this life, as if this was our permanent home. And all this is possible because as Peter says in verse 3, we are called to live to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So why do we need this living hope? Because we all live in a world that's suffering. What is it? It's the resurrection that's in Christ, the salvation that's in Christ. Why do we have this living hope? Because God is merciful. What makes it possible? Jesus' resurrection. Let's talk a little bit about what are the results of, of having this living hope. At the um, risk of sounding very unoriginal, the result of having a living hope is hope. Genuine, true hope. Not a hopeful hope but a real hope. We talked a little bit about this just, just now, and Viktor Frankl uh, gave it to the same conclusion, but, but Halford Lecoq said it best in his book, Unfinished Business, and it's so powerful. He says, if you have no hope for the future, you'll have no power for the present. <laughs> Brilliant. I love how in one sentence somebody can summarize my entire sermon in, in just right there. He says, if you have no hope for the future, you have no power for the present. The living hope that Peter writes about brings a boldness into you because you have an inheritance unlike anything you've ever known. You have an inheritance more valuable than you could imagine. It will not run out. It can't be taken from you, and its value is inestimable, and it's yours. And you can live for what really matters because you no longer care about this world like you used to. You care about this world like you should. 
and that changes the way you live. But most importantly, this living hope recalibrates our hearts to be a worshiper of God. You notice how Peter starts right in verse 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you understand that living hope, you start to realize, wait a minute, whoa, I thought I was living on the stage of my own performance, and I realized this, is, this, this life has nothing to do about me. This whole performance is to be a display of God's glory, and I can be a bit part in maximizing that glory. I need to recalibrate the way I'm living. And so Peter starts by blessing the name of God. And that's what that living hope does. It gives us boldness to live for what really matters. And it changes us to be worshipers of God and no longer of ourselves and no longer the things of this life. Now, Easter is about many things today, right? 2,000 years after the original Easter event. It's about going to church, being with family and friends. It's uh, having good meals. But what is first and foremost is about this living hope that Peter writes about. And we can have all those other things and still not have Easter if we don't have this living hope. When Jesus came to this earth, he did not come here to establish a religion or a moral system. No. He came to proclaim the gospel that holy God and sinful man could now be made one again because of his death on the cross. Notice all the metaphors he used while he was on earth to describe the life-giving power of his life. He described himself as light, as bread, as water, as the way all because of what he was doing, all because of the resurrection, we can have this living hope. And through us, through the resurrection, creation can be restored. That's the living hope that Easter is all about. Let's pray. Lord, we just spent maybe 30 minutes looking at three verses that we could spend a lifetime contemplating. We know believe it's later in Peter's writings or the author of Hebrews says that these are the things that angels themselves long to look into. And Father, we are the inheritor of these things even as we still continue to inherit eternal life and the living hope. Father, our prayer is not that we would have a wonderful celebration once a year, but that we would live in the reality of what Easter is, that we have been called to be born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May that radically change the way we live and move through this world. For your glory and our good, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This Easter message titled, Called to a Living Hope, was given by Pastor Rick Roadheaver at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.cccLH.org.